All right, Ecclesiastes chapter four. And I know uh, it's been a couple weeks, so let me just remind us of where we are. And I think at a certain point, I'm probably gonna stop doing this summary thing because uh, the further we go on the book, but we're only in chapter four, so we can still do, just, we can still do this. Uh, but in the first three chapters, right, the preacher has really tried to make us feel what he calls the vanity of life, right? That word vanity is the word havel. He calls it the vanity of life under the sun. And we said that that word vanity is not like, he's not talking about meaninglessness. He's not talking about like utter emptiness, but a better kind of understanding of that word is he's talking about how life is fleeting, how it's puzzling, it's frustrating, it's out of our grasp, right? It's elusive. And if you think back to the first message, the illustration that we used was your breath on a cold day. That's that's the vanity of life that not only is it like quickly disappearing, it's here one second and it's gone, but you also can't grab onto it, right? You can't like take it and shape it into something. Uh, you can't manipulate it or master it. That's what he's talking about, that life is this way in a fallen world. And if you think back to Ecclesiastes chapter one, he showed us that through nature, right? How nature is endlessly repetitive. Uh, he talks about how the sun rises and the sun goes down. He says all the streams, they flow into the sea, but the sea's never full. They just It just keeps going. And there's this frustrating restlessness about life that you can't escape. And then the next section, end of chapter one, chapter two, he told us about all these various pursuits that he went on, ways that he tried to debunk this reality about life and ways that he tried to seek gain in this life. And so he went on these uh, experiments or these pursuits of going after wisdom or knowledge, pleasure, projects, accomplishments, all of these things. And yet he reaches the same conclusion. And the new information we get in chapter two is that everything ends in death, right? You can't defeat death. That's the trump card. Um, and that makes all of these pursuits vain. And then last time in chapter three, we had this, uh, we had that very well-known poem about time, right? Or, or the seasons of our lives. And uh, even though it's a really you know, famous and uh, nice sounding poem, we realize that time is actually uh, kind of like a tyrant, right? Like time just keeps marching on. It, it dominates and it dictates our lives. Uh, it's kind of like the tide at the beach, right? We're like just rocked back and forth by its current. We don't decide how long our lives last. We don't decide how many days we get on this earth, nor do we control which Lego pieces we get, right? We don't get to control like what kinds of seasons, the things that make up uh, the whole of our lives. And so all of this is what the preacher means by vanity. But as we've gone through this, like we said, it's not only sad and depressing. There is a, there's hope in this, there is joy and there's wisdom. And that's the preacher's goal. His goal is to keep us from being disillusioned with this world and to equip us to live wisely uh, in this life under the sun. And we've seen some of that wisdom so far. Uh, he says that you can't totally take the vanity out of life, but you can find genuine enjoyment. And that comes about when you receive life and you receive everything as a gift rather than as a means to gain. Um, that was at the end of chapter two. And then last time in chapter three, Right? He says, even though we can't understand or we can't control the times or the seasons of our lives, God does. 
Uh, and, and God has promised that he will make everything beautiful in its time. And so, as we've learned, a life that is well lived in this world, in this fallen world, is one in which we understand our limitations. Right? We understand how life really is, and we rest in God's management of our lives. Well, when we get here to chapter 4, uh, the preacher is going to give us another piece of advice. Okay, And it's, it's another piece of advice that is going to help us to live uh, a life well-lived under the sun, uh, a piece of advice that is, is going to help us to actually enjoy life here uh, in this fallen world. And this piece of advice has to do with relationships, okay, relationships. And he says that if you want to find enjoyment, if you want to live wisely, then don't forget about relationships. He says, do life together and share with one another. Okay, I think that's the big idea of chapter four. And so let's read this together. Ecclesiastes chapter four, I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, and I want you to, to look out for this idea of doing life together, right? The importance of relationships. All right, so let's read. Uh, this is starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Is also his vanity in unhappy business. Verse 9, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end uh, of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. And we do ask now that as we look into this passage, that you would show us the importance of living life together, of being in a relationship, of being in community, of, of thinking about one another and all the things that we do, rather than focusing on, our, on ourself. And so use this time uh, in, in this passage to teach us that and to, uh, to shape our thinking and to change our hearts. Um, God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we'll take this in two parts. Okay. So uh, living for self and then living together. Living for self 
and living together. We'll start with the first one. So living for self. I think I've mentioned this before, uh, but I believe that one of the most significant temptations and dangers, especially for you guys as college students, is to live a life that's focused on yourself. Okay, and obviously that's not just a college thing, right? I think like this is true of everyone, but I, I think there is something particular about your current stage of life, where maybe for the first time you're ga- you're getting more freedoms. Uh, you're making some really big decisions. Uh, you're deciding, you know, what do you want to study? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Who do you hope to end up with? You make all these big decisions about your life. And I think this like self-focus, right? Just thinking about yourself can, can get lost in all of that, right? It can become normalized and subtle and undetected. I want you to think about even this past week, uh, you know, what are some of the things that you were hoping to accomplish? Or, or why do you do what you want to do? Um, when you think about why you study so hard, right, or, or try to do well on your exams, why, why are you working so hard? And I'm not saying that however you, know, you chose to answer those questions needs, needs to totally change per se, but I do think that they reveal the ways in which we go through life often focused on ourselves. Everything revolves around us, and the person that you spend the most time thinking about I'm going to guess, is you. We're constantly thinking, oh, how am I doing? Or how, how does this affect me? And I think this passage shows us that some of the consequences of that, right? Some of the consequences of that self-focus or just thinking about yourself plays out in our relationships. So far in Ecclesiastes, we've seen how often we want to master and to manipulate and to get ahead of the world and to get ahead of these uh, limitations that just are on us as humans, right? We want to get ahead of time. Um, and here in this section, the preacher says that we also want to get ha- get ahead of other people, right? That this happens in our relationships as well. Uh, like we said earlier, the big idea of this passage is that we live wisely, we live joyfully in this fallen world by living in community and by living in relationship. Okay, pretty straightforward idea, I think. Uh, but he's going to get us there by first showing us the vanity of living for yourself. He's going to show us the foolishness and the consequences of only looking out for yourself and of isolating yourself from relationship with others. And so a lot of uh, the stuff that he's going to talk about in this first section, he's going to resolve in his second point. He's going to tell us about the benefits of community. But as we get there, um, as we go through this first half, I want to give you a few different heart check questions. And I want to give you some things to think about and to uh, consider and to honestly ask yourself, uh, do these questions, do the, my answers to these questions reveal areas where I am too focused on myself, especially at the expense of others? Okay, so I have a few questions here. Uh, the first one is this, can I identify and lament over others' suffering? Can I identify and lament over others' suffering? Last time in chapter 3, we didn't get to spend too much time on verses 16 to 22, uh, but it does kind of lead us into where we are at the beginning of chapter 4. Okay, so in that section, the preacher is going to talk about all of these different enigmas and harsh realities of life under the sun. Okay, so he, he looks around at the world, uh, and, and what does he see? And he says, 
Well, he sees injustice. That's in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. He says that the places where there is supposed to be justice and righteousness, uh, there's wickedness. The justice system actually becomes this context for, for injustice, right? It's, it's really messed up. What else does he see? He sees death, uh, verses 18 to 21. And then when you get to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he also sees oppression. When he looks in positions of authority, he sees that people abuse their power. And so we're not just talking about like, the governments and the courts where there's injustice, but he looks around at workplaces, in marriages, in churches, in our relationship with our neighbors. And, and we see that rather than using power for good, the strong use power to actually oppress the weak. I mean, maybe you can think of examples in the news, in your own life, uh, where you see the reality of this, of, of oppression and abuse of power. And so these are some of the harsh realities that characterize life in this fallen world. Okay, this is what uh, life outside of Eden is like. And I hope like you've realized that these are not things that just we explain away, right? We don't just like paste on some Bible verse and, and that's okay. Though the preacher does give us some answers, right? He tells us that there's injustice where there should be justice right now. But back in chapter three, right, he says, God is going to bring every everything into account one day, that he's going to bring judgment. He's going to make everything right. But I want you to look at what he says in verses two and three of chapter four. And basically he says, like he looks around at everything and it's better to be dead. Right? It's better to not even have been born. That way the preacher says you don't have to experience, you don't have to witness the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now maybe you read that and you think, like, isn't that a little extreme? Right? Like, does that, does that sound okay to you? Are we allowed to say something like that? I think what we're supposed to learn from that is that when we look long and hard enough at the world around us, and when we put all of these like multiple distractions down for a second, when we take time to consider how others around us are doing, the preacher says that oftentimes we will encounter suffering, that you will encounter brokenness, you will encounter messed up relationships. We see how truly broken things are, how the curse has affected everything. And an appropriate response to this is to grieve and to lament, right? It's to be affected by it. Even if injustice, even if oppression are realities that are inevitable, they're things that we can expect in this life under the sun, we still care about it, right? We still try to do something about it. And so let me ask you, are you able to identify, are you able to lament over other people's specific suffering? It doesn't have to be huge things like uh, oppression. Maybe it's just think about the people in your life, right? What are the, the things that they're going through? Can you identify them and can you lament with them? And this takes personal and loving and wise conversations. This takes time and patience. This takes slowing down and sitting down and actually listening and actually looking around at people in our lives. But I think how this fits into this passage is one reason that keeps us from doing this well is because we're too distracted or because we're too focused on ourselves. Like we said, we're too often thinking about how am I doing and how am I feeling that we don't think about how others are doing as well. And so that's the first question. Can you just see suffering around you? So in verse four, 
as we move on, the preacher makes it a little more personal. Okay, so maybe when you hear the word oppression, you think of like this systemic thing, this, this big thing that's like so much above you, and maybe we're not guilty of that. Um, but in verse 4, he points us to this heart issue that's actually at the bottom of that, and I think that many of us can relate to. Okay, so the second question is, do I envy others? And if so, then what do I envy? Okay, verse 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. What do you think about that statement that he makes there? He says that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Um, basically, the, the driving motivation behind like why you work so hard is because you, you want what this other person has, right? You're like, you care about this other person. Um, listen to what Derek Kidner, he's a commentator. He says this, we may quibble if we will and remind him of such people who toil simply to keep alive or those artists who really love perfection for its own sake. Uh, but listen to this. The fact remains that all too much of our hard work and high endeavor is mixed with the craving to outshine or not be outshone. To outshine or not be outshone. Another commentator puts it like this, that people will accomplish out of envy what they would not attempt for better motives. Now, his point here, I don't think, is like to bring this up for debate, right? It's not like, oh, really? Like every single thing that we do is, is driven by this. But I think he's trying to show us this reality about ourselves that is, is often so fundamental and is often something we would rather not admit. When you think about it, for us, we don't like to confess our sins of envy. We don't like to confess that we're jealous of others, especially to close friends, right? Because what that means is we're acknowledging that we wish that we had something that they have, right? That, that we wish we were more like them. I mean, maybe you can think about this in your own life, even in your own pursuits, in your own studies, in the things that you're doing. Like, you can't help but keep a side eye on other people. And you're always wondering, oh, how's that person doing uh, in relation to me? I mean, do you guys see the irony in all of this? When we live life only looking out for ourselves, the preacher says, we become totally consumed with whether or not we've gotten ahead of others. We're constantly putting ourselves in this unnecessary competition with others. The reality is uh, there will inevitably be someone who is smarter than you. There will be someone who is more successful than you, more impressive, more good looking. And he says in verse four, all of this is a striving after the wind. That if this is how you live life, if this is how, if this is what motivates you, then you will never be satisfied. You will never be happy with yourself and you will never be able to rejoice for others. Uh, Victor Hugo, he has a poem in which uh, greed and envy, they're, they're two, like, uh, he personifies them. And, and each of them are given one wish on the condition that the other person gets twice as much. Okay, and, and you know what uh, envy's wish is? I think this is so true. Envy wishes, uh, his wish is, I wish to be blind in one eye. I wish to be blind in one eye. How does God's word teach us about how we're supposed to relate to other people? Well, Romans 12, 15, uh, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We, we rejoice and, and when other people do well, we're supposed to weep when other people weep. I want you to hold on to that thought for now because we're going to come back to it um, in our second point. But I just want to challenge you, where does envy show up in your life? Right? What are the things that you envy?
Or does he keep going if the preacher says, okay, so if so much of toil, if so much of hard work is driven by competition, if it's driven by this like sinister motive, then do I just not work so hard, right? Is that like the way to go? And then the preacher says, no, not necessarily, because that can also be another way of just looking out for yourself. And that leads to our next question, which is, am I lazy? Okay, pretty straightforward question. Am I lazy? Verse five. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay, we'll, we'll keep this one pretty short and, and to the point. But the preacher is giving us the extremes here. Okay, so if, if you have like that nonstop competition, the rat race of verse four, you have someone who has too much ambition, who's trying, like constantly trying to outdo someone else, then verse five is the opposite extreme. Right? You have someone who has too little ambition, who's like not doing anything, not productive at all. I mean, you can picture someone lying on their bed or just like plopped on their couch. Their, their hands are folded. That's what it says. Um, and they're just like lounging around. They're doing nothing. And they have like Costco-sized chips next to them. Um, I don't know, whatever. Like you can imagine that, right? Maybe that was something you this past week. Um, but it's the same picture that we get in the Proverbs. It says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Okay, so this person is, is inactive, he's idle. And uh, the preacher says here in verse 5 that their laziness leads to self-destruction. Right? The picture is he eats his own flesh because he has nothing else to eat. Right? He hasn't worked for anything, so he has to resort to eating himself and he destroys himself. But here's his point. That laziness is a form of living for self because it keeps us from being able to love and share with others, right? It keeps us from being able to, to love and to share our work, time, and resources with those around us. The way that we often talk about it here at Lighthouse is in terms of stewardship, uh, that God has gifted us or he's entrusted us with certain things, skills, with time, with abilities, with resources. And when we're lazy, we're failing to steward the things that God has given us and intended for us to use to bless others. And so ask yourself, what is something that you know that you should do, but you haven't um, because you just don't feel like it? Right? It can be something small. Maybe it's doing a chore around the house. Maybe it's something a little more significant, like you just don't want to do the hard work of, uh, of socializing because you're more introverted. What's that thing you, you haven't done uh, at which you can use to love and to serve others uh, just because you, you don't feel like it. And on top of that, who have you relied on to do that work for you? And how can you contribute? How can you give back uh, to those people? There's a better way than either of these extremes, not just like this manic busyness, not just idle laziness, uh, because both of those are focused on ourself. Um, and it's in verse six. He says, better is a handful of quietness and two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And so the next question is, do I pursue contentment and rest? That picture there of two hands full of toil, uh, it's a picture of trying to get all that you can. Okay, so like someone just both hands all out trying to grab everything that they can get. I don't know why when I thought about this, but the example that came to mind for me was, uh, was Black Friday shopping. You can think of, you know, you can imagine those YouTube videos or maybe you went in person People are skipping Thanksgiving dinner. They're waiting in line. Like they're like literally fighting each other, running over each other because they want to get the best deals they can get their hands on, right? They're like two hands full of 
Black Friday deals. And, and the preacher says that it's better to have less stuff plus rest, plus quietness and peace. It's better to have a smaller TV. It's better to have less stress, uh, time with your family on Thanksgiving. Uh, it's better to have more sleep than two hands full of toil. The lesson here is that rest and contentment are more important than wealth and success. Not only one hand is full in this picture, right? But it's more than enough. First uh, Timothy 6, it says something similar. Paul warns us in that passage. He says, he warns us about the love of money, right? It's not, it's not money itself that's wrong. He warns us against this, uh, this like consuming desire for money, two hands full of money. But on the contrary, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, what does contentment and what does rest have to do with living for ourselves? Well, I think they teach us to recognize that we're not the ones that are in control. We, they teach us that we are desperately dependent and not self-sufficient. And for you, if you don't have space in your life for quietness, then I would challenge you a little bit more. Maybe there's something wrong with your view of, uh, of work. Maybe something wrong with your view of time. Um, something wrong. There's something wrong there, right? They've become too big where we've pushed out these things that God has given us, contentment and rest. Um, Psalm 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Uh, but, and it says, For he gives to his beloved sleep. You get that quietness, rest, peace, contentment. That is a gift from God. And it's something that we as human beings uh, who naturally give ourselves to toil, who naturally want to compete against other people, it's something that we need to learn. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, I've learned contentment. And how do we learn it? Well, the quietness that the preacher talks about, it doesn't come from reaching a certain point in life. It doesn't come from having a certain amount of stuff. Quietness has to do with our desires, right? Learning to be okay with just one hand of stuff. Um, the Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book called The Rare, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he talks about this. And he says that we learn as Christians, we learn contentment by subtraction rather than addition. And we learn by bringing your desires down to the level of your possessions, not the other way around. So Beacon, how are you actively cultivating quietness of heart in your own life? I mean, maybe it's something as practical as you know, like carving out and discarding time for being with God. Maybe it's just putting certain limits on uh, your studies um, or on certain activities in your life. Maybe it's just slowing down learning to rejoice and to weep with others and learn contentment in that way. And maybe it's just cultivating thankfulness every day, writing things you're thankful for down in a journal. Maybe it's something just as practical as like getting more sleep, right? Recognizing that you are a dependent creature and you need like space for rest in your life. Do you pursue contentment and rest? And then last question is, this: do I use people as a means to an end? Do I use people as a means to an end? And if so, what is that end? Okay, we'll expand more on this idea um, in our second point, but here in verses 7 to 8, we get this picture of a person who it says uh, he has no other. Right? This person is isolated and this person is alone. 
And I, I want to acknowledge that sometimes we experience being alone and isolation because of circumstances. Uh, COVID is an obvious example of that. Many of us are more isolated than before, um, and that's just outside of our control. But I think when we read in these verses, it seems like isolation is a result of this person's decision, right? It's this kind of self-imposed isolation. Um, I think you read through this and you can imagine like uh, a CEO at a big company. Right? He has devoted himself to his work. He's made it to the top. But at the end of all of that, right, as, it's, as he's at the pinnacle of everything, he's looking back and he realizes he doesn't have anyone to share this with. He doesn't have anyone to enjoy all of this with. He doesn't even have an heir to pass it along to. And he, he asked the question to himself in verse 8, who am I doing this all for? As we've been going through Ecclesiastes, uh, we've talked about this idea of we have this tendency in life to look past what is right in front of us a lot of times. Right? We look past like the opportunities that are right in front of us to the next thing after that. Um, and I think we do that with people too, with relationships too. And maybe what that looks like is, is using and manipulating people, right? You think of the people who are like just totally networking, right? Like they're, they're having conversations with people. They're befriending people simply based on the connections that they have. They're like, oh, like you can get me this. Oh, let me talk to you. Or maybe it's just neglecting community. Maybe you think to yourself, well, relationships get in the way of what I want to do. Maybe you, you think that relationships will slow you down and, and you think, okay, I'll get back to them when I have more free time. Now, I think one of the things that can happen during the season of post-grad, um, and maybe if you experience this now, even with, with COVID, is that often this happens slowly and this happens very subtly by patterns and by degrees. Right? It's not often where it's like, okay, I'm just going to forsake like all relationships. I'm just going to cut everyone off. I don't have time for people, but it happens slowly and gradually. And it happens as we, where you start to think, okay, like I'll just get back to this when I have more free time. I'll just get back to this friend like next week when I'm done studying. I'll just get to back, back to this later. And of course, yeah, yeah, like relationships change over time. There's, that's just part of life. But when we don't make time for them, when we're too consumed with something else instead, when we're too consumed with our own pursuits, then the warning here is that we can soon find ourselves more isolated than we thought. And so for you, do you see people as means to an end? Again, if, if uh, you say yeah to that question, then, then what is that end? The preacher mentions two examples uh, in this passage. So verses 7 and 8, we said the end that he's pursuing is, uh, is wealth, right? So if, if all you're pursuing is wealth or success or status, if all you're after is this certain kind of lifestyle at some point in your life, then, then uh, the preacher says you might tragically realize at the end of all of that you have no one to share it with. And then if you jump down to verses 13 to 16, um, he tells us this story. And uh, it's a story of, it says, a poor and wise youth, and then an old and foolish king. And we'll come back to this later because I think there is a lesson we can learn from this. But in this story, right, we have this old king, and he falls out of favor with the people. And this poor youth, um, he actually makes this very unlikely ascension to the throne. And right? he gains the people's popularity, and, and people love him, and he's, he's like, made this, uh, like, he's made it, right? He, he's on the throne, um, but his conclusion there is like, it's that same unrelenting rhythm of life, 
right? Like time doesn't stop soon. There's going to be someone, there's going to be those people who come later who aren't, you know, as enthusiastic about this new king. And then this youth who's like so popular, popular now is going to fall out of favor just like the last guy. And so what's the end here? Well, it's popularity. It's being well-liked. It's the approval of others, right? Are you using people for that end just to be well-liked, just to gain approval? And the preacher says, no, it's not worth putting your relationships on the line for because that's not going to last. That's not worth it. I know it's been a lot so far, but I think the big picture I want us to realize is just how sin and how the curse has frustrated and distorted and destroyed relationships. Okay, I think we often talk about how sin is ultimately vertical between us and God, right? He's the one that we offend the most. But I think what we see here is that sin is also horizontal between us and others. And, and on top of that, sin is not just like bad things that we do, right? It's not just like, oh, you're like explicitly trying to wrong this other person. But sin in this fallen world affects how we think. It affects the goals in our lives. It affects our motivations. It affects how we view people, right? It changes our default setting to something that it's not intended to be. And so I hope you've seen just how far we are from what God created, a life we were meant to live together with one another. And so maybe as we've gone through these questions, they have revealed areas in your own life where you fall short. And if that's you, if you're like feeling convicted by some of these messages or by some of these questions, then I want to remind you that our hope is in the gospel. Apart from Christ, of course, we will live lives that are centered on self. I mean, Pastor David, he just preached this past Sunday from Ephesians 2, and that passage teaches us, right, we are following the, the ways of this world. We're dead, and we're just blindly following the ways of this world and the value systems of this world. But because of the gospel, this is what 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says. It, it says, because Christ died for all, it says, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the gospel is the only solution to our, to our self-focused, self-centered heart. That's our hope, right? And so if you, see, if you find yourself falling short, like turn to that. Turn to that as the solution. And so a life well lived for self leads to, or a life lived for self leads to restlessness, leads to destruction. The preacher says it's vanity, it's a striving after wind. That's, that's not how God meant for it to be. Rather, a life lived wisely in this fallen world takes place in relationship with one another. And that leads to our second point, which is living together. Okay, living together. So if our passage so far has shown us the vanity of living for yourself, then verses 9 to 12 shows us the benefits of doing life together. And I think verse 9 is a good summary of this. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And then the preacher, he, give, he goes on and he gives us three examples. Okay, verse 10, he says, uh, if you fall, if you fall down, then you can have someone else come and help, you lift, help lift you up. Uh, or verse 11, uh, for some reason I heard this a lot at like youth retreats, this verse, taken out of context. But if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Or verse 12, if someone attacks you, a companion can help defend you. Someone tries to overtake you, prevail over you, like you have someone else to, to defend you and to, to ward them off. 
And then he goes on, he says this phrase, um, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. When he says that, he's just reinforcing his point. Uh, maybe you've heard that verse before in like weddings and stuff. And people do all kinds of weird things with that verse. Like they're saying, oh, like it's you and like your spouse and God. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's just talking about just relationships and community in general. Uh, like it's not just marriage specifically. I mean, if anything, the immediate context is about being in a fight. Right, so all he's saying is that if two is better than one, then how much better is it to have a three? How much better to have even more people around you and surrounding you? And don't miss what he says here, right? He says to be in relationship, to be in community with one another is not just the right thing to do. It's not just the more spiritual thing to do, but it's actually the better, the wiser, and the happier way to live. His emphasis here is on the benefits, that this is one way that we can find enjoyment in a life that is otherwise marked by vanity. So I just want to quickly look at two specific benefits that I think he talks about in, in these verses. Um, the, the first one is this, that life together is shared. Life together is shared. Uh, in this passage, life together is better because you get to share the fruit of your toil in community. Relationships are put in their proper place. Instead of seeing others as your competitor, as your rival, as someone who is either ahead of you or someone who is either behind you, life in God's world, life as God intended for it to be, there is this mutual dependence in community. I am loving you as I love myself. If that sounds familiar, that's because that's the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so this changes how we think about the value of work, doesn't it? Like work, even if it's something hard, even if it's something tiring sometimes, it's a gift. It's a blessing from God to use uh, our, our minds, our skills, our hands, and the opportunities that God has given us. But another part is that work is a way to love and to serve others. The value of work isn't found in your, in your job title. It's not found in your salary, in your PTO, and in your future security. The value of work is it's an opportunity to do good to other people. And so what if you approach your studying? What if you approach your exams? What if you approach your interviews? What if you approach your choice of major, like thinking about that? Uh, if you read in the New Testament, it gives us even more language to understand this. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we as believers, the church, that we are a body made up of many members. Now, each part has its different role, but each part is necessary. Uh, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And sure, there may, there may be many moments where it might seem like uh, maybe for you, like it's easier, it's faster, it's more efficient um, to just do something on your own, right? Like having someone else there slows you down. Uh, maybe guys, you can relate to this when it comes to, to shopping or like to going to Target, right? Like it's just faster in and out. Like you don't you want to have another girl there. But what are some of the benefits that you've experienced from doing life with others? Or maybe someone provided for you when you were in time of need. Or maybe you can think about the joy of just joining in on celebrating something in someone else's life, right? Like how happy you were to celebrate someone else's birthday or someone else's graduation or wedding. Um, maybe you think of uh, like certain friendships where you're like, man, I don't know where I would be without these people in my life without being able to share life with them. And what about church? Imagine right now 
during COVID, if we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have Zoom, we didn't have anything like that, and you just, you're just by yourself at home, and you like had to figure out how to do church. You had to figure out how to like survive spiritually. And you thank God that there are other people who are better at certain things than we are, right? Because like all of that works together to function as a body as God intended. And that is a shared life. Life together is shared. And then second, life together is supported. Something that we say often here at Lighthouse is that we are both needy and needed. Right? Needy and needed. You are needed, um, like we just said, because you are a member of the body. And how you are doing and, and what you're doing affects the health of everyone else. It affects the rest of the body. And that's what we just talked about. But the other side of that is we are also needy. Right? We are needy people. And I think it's interesting when you read through uh, verses 9 to 16, that one of the, the things that comes up over and over again is this idea of support, this idea of protection from danger, whether that's like physical danger from being in a fight or from falling down, or even just the danger of like foolishness, the danger of not listening to anyone else, not taking anyone else, else's advice. Uh, that's what we see with the king in verse 13. Doing life in community provides us with the counsel and insight and guidance of other people. Uh, it provides us with others to tell us honestly, hey, like, I don't think this is a good idea right now. The, the rest of the Bible talks about this. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Um, or Hebrews 3, 13, it says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? We have other people to guard us and to protect us spiritually. And so what about you? What are some ways that you've personally experienced the support and protection of doing life in community? Um, I love this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is more sure. And I read that quote in it. For myself, I think I can say that I've been able to experience that in community. For myself, one of the specific places where like, this is really obvious to me uh, is just being on staff at Lighthouse, like being able to be with the other pastors there. I think of just the countless times where they have been that brother or they've been that sister to speak a stronger Christ to me, right? A stronger and more sure Christ to my heart. They've helped pick me up when I've fallen down. They've wisely and they've graciously given counsel when I was so easily prone to follow my own advice. And that's something like, I think really special that I'm thankful for is that we've, ha we've had like open conversations about our own hearts. We've talked about how envy and comparison is a real temptation sometimes. But like that honesty is so helpful for me because I know that like even if that's something that, that we struggle with sometimes, that we're all looking out for each other. We're not trying to one-up each other. We're not trying to like make our ministry look good in comparison to this other ministry. We're all uh, celebrating each other's wins. We're, we're rooting for each other. We're trying to encourage each other. And I think because of that environment, that Lighthouse is a better church because of it. And I think about that, and I can genuinely say there's a safety in being a part of that community. 
that they protect me from spiritual danger, even, I would say, especially during a time like this when we're unable to gather in person. And it's not just them. I can think of friends. I can think of family. I can think of other people. I'm at Lighthouse. I think of you guys in Beacon. And I, I really hope that's been f- true for you as well, to, to find support and to find protection and safety in life together. And so Beacon, brothers and sisters, the big idea is that I need you. You need me. We all need one another. And so for some of you, I want to challenge you to honestly uh, just examine the priority that community has in your life. Do you need to lean into relationships more? Maybe you've pushed it off to the side in pursuit of something else. Maybe you just think you're self-sufficient on your own. Like you're, you're, you're good. Like you don't really need that other person. Let me ask you, what's one step that you can take in response to this message? It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, like lighthouse. It doesn't even have to be beacon. Maybe for you, it just means like really intentionally thinking through your friendships Having like just one or two people who really know you. Uh, maybe for you, it's, it's something as simple as like joining a Zoom call to fellowship with other people. Even though you don't feel like it, even though you just, you were on Zoom for like hours for class already. And all of us have been on Zoom for good enough for the rest of our lives. Um, but maybe it's just, it's doing that, right? Just hopping onto that because you care about the value of community and you want to support uh, one another and you need to be supported as well. Um, like I said earlier, I know that sometimes being isolated and being out of community is uh, circumstantial, right? And like I said, I think COVID right now is a big example of that. And so I know that there are others of you um, who are hurting right now, who are uh, maybe lonely. You're, you're struggling because of the limitations of community and being together. And maybe for you, it's not that like you don't value it, but you, there's, you just can't right now, right? Like we all can't and it's hard. Well, one of the really awesome things about God's church that we see over and over again throughout scripture is that the church is this unlikely and countercultural presence and community. You think of the people who who make up the church, right? You see orphans and widows, um, the worst of sinners, the disenfranchised, um, for those who would otherwise be alone or for those who would have no other reason for being together. The church is a home and the church is a family. And even during a season like this where like, Everyone's comfortable in their own homes. We still value being together. And so if that's you, if you're struggling because of the limitations of community during the season, then let me encourage you to lean into your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Lean in even more. Share your burdens with them. Let them bear those burdens with you. And right now, uh, one of the hardest things for pastors is to keep up with everyone. We try to reach out to as many people as we can and, and to know what's up, but Uh, It's hard. And so uh, one encouragement is like put yourself in positions to allow your pastors to shepherd you well. Uh, Same thing with your small group leaders, right? Like let them shepherd you well by sharing what's going on in your life. And then for all of us, I think one way that we can grow in living life as God intended by living in relationship is by asking this question, how are we doing? How are we doing? Not just how am I doing, but how are we doing? And that's a question that your pastors, that your Beacon staff, that your small group leaders, um, that myself, like we're all trying to think through that often, especially during this unique season of ministry. But I don't want you to think that that it's just their job to think about that question. That we all need to learn to ask that question, how are we doing? And as as we ask that question, we begin to realize, okay, is there someone I can pray for? 
right? Or, or what practical meet or what practical needs could I meet? Um, is there someone I can reach out to to check up on? Oh, this person shared this burden uh, or this prayer request in small groups a couple weeks ago. Maybe I can follow up because I care about how they're doing. Right? How are we doing? As we move into small groups, let me encourage you uh, to put that into practice. That is the perfect context of doing that. Right? You get to consider that question together. How are we doing? God intended for us to live life in community. That is how we live wisely. That's how we uh, enjoy life in this world. That is how God created us to be. And so let me challenge you to do that as we move into small groups. Um, apply that. Right, You have an opportunity to do, to do that right now. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you that even in this life that's marked by vanity and that's affected by the curse of sin, that there are so many evidences of your grace, and in particular, the the grace of being with one another in a relationship, experiencing a shared life and the support from those around us. So I do pray that you would teach us um, to really ask that question, how are we doing, to have eyes to Uh, think and look beyond ourselves and to uh, really love our neighbors and to love those in our lives well. I pray that this would happen even in these next few moments as we move into small groups. God, we thank you for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.